Good evening. It's good to be here, and we're looking forward to worshiping the Lord together. Maybe a little bit about myself or ourselves. Um, my wife is along. Glad to have her with us on this trip, and um, we have four children. Two of them married, and and one of our married children has blessed us with two grandchildren. So we're glad for that. If you're interested at all, my wife has a picture and we'll be glad to fill you in with all the details and that sort of thing. Dennis called and asked me to do this. Oh, I don't know. Was it a year ago or so? I forget when it was and I didn't want to do it. I just did not want to do it. But I thought, you know, I've worked on Ryan quite a bit of his life and if God gives me the opportunity to be a positive influence in his life one more time. Maybe I should go ahead and take the opportunity. No, that, uh, that, that's one of the things that crosses your mind when you're in your, uh, maybe not in your right mind or something like that. I uh, plan on doing something that I've enjoyed hearing other evangelists do, and that is I'm going to have something of a pre-sermon or Either that or a children's meeting every evening. And so, Ryan, I'd like you to be prepared for like two verses of song after that for me to collect my scattered thoughts and go on to something else. Um, this evening we want to look at a subject. We're going to kind of bump into this subject again and again in our pre-sermon talk as we go through the week. If you want to look at some verses... Uh, Turn to Isaiah chapter 66. There have only been a few times in the history of mankind where God has made the veil thin enough that we could see what God is like. And because God is so complex that we really don't understand Him very well, we have gotten these pictures of God and it wasn't at all clear and because yeah, probably you've read, the, read or heard the uh, poem about those six wise men from India that go up and they feel this elephant and they all touch him in different places and one says well he's like a wall the other one grabs hold of the tail and says no he's like a rope and He's like a hose, you know, he grabs hold of the trunk or something like that. And, you know, and he says, um, all of them were partly right, but all of them were wrong. And that's kind of the way it is when we try to describe God with our finite minds. But t- uh, think with me back to uh, Sinai, Mount Sinai, there where God comes down and talks with Moses. And he wants to speak to the, the children of Israel. And it scares the children of Israel so badly. They said, no, 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 Moses, you take care of this. And they're running away from the mountain. And God had had given warning that they were not to touch the mountain, that things would go poorly for them if they did. And that's, that's one glimpse that we get. In Isaiah, the first part of the book, uh, Isaiah gets a glimpse of God. And he says that doorposts move and there's smoke filling the house and and he falls down I think on his face and, his, and he hears these cherubim saying holy 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 and he's just 
overwhelmed with the holiness of God. And sometimes I think we dwell on those things about God, and that is, that is part of the character of God. But it is, is it the only character of God that we can see revealed in the Scripture? There in Isaiah chapter 66, starting at verse 1, it says, Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build unto me, and where is the place of my rest? For all these things hath my hand made. Pretty impressive. God's done all these things. He's saying, he's challenging people. Can you make something for me that is better than what I can do? No. And he kind of puts us in our place there. But then he goes on. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't quite finish the all the phrases I wanted. And all those things have been, saith the Lord. But then he goes on, he says, But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. And that, those, those phrases there, I, I, I want to challenge you with that this week. We'll be coming back to this scripture over and over again. Who is God interested in? Have you ever been attracted to someone? <clears throat> now this happens to young men and young ladies, and hopefully us older ones too, even after we're married, that we're attracted to someone and we want to impress that person. And so we do things to impress them. Sometimes the onlookers say, wow, I don't think I would do that to try to impress somebody, but yeah, each to their own. Uh, maybe that will work. But God is saying here, you want, to, you want to impress me? You want to make yourself irresistible to me, to God? He said, here's what you do. Here's what, here, here's, here's how. <laughs> to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and that's not talking about how much money you have in the bank account. It's talking about a humble person. He that is poor and of a contrite spirit. That person... He will tremble at the word of God. And this week, as we look into God's word, and we think about different subjects about God and what he has to say to us about a plan for our lives, God's interested in us. And he wants the very best for you. He wants the very best for me. But he's not interested in helping us if we're going to be have that problem of pride in our lives. And that's something we want to look at a little bit on these uh, evenings as we look at uh, a pre-sermon talk. I got on this binge several years ago at our home congregation. I don't know if Ryan's were still there when I did that. It turned into ten sermons. Now, now it's not going to happen that way this time, but... Uh, um, I got started and it just didn't seem like I could get done. And I think it was time to be done when I did. But I have a poem that comes with it. It's not really a poem, it's a reading. It says, My name is Pride. I am a cheater. I cheat you of God-given destiny because you demand your own way. I cheat you of contentment because you deserve better than this. I cheat you of knowledge because you already know it all. I cheat you of healing because you're too full of me to forgive. 
I cheat you of holiness because you refuse to admit when you're wrong. I cheat you of vision because you'd rather look in a mirror than look out a window. I cheat you of genuine friendship because nobody's going to know the real you. I cheat you of love because real romance demands sacrifice. I cheat you of greatness in heaven because you refuse to wash another's feet on earth. I cheat you of God's glory because I convince you to seek your own. My name is Pride. I am a cheater. You like me because you think I'm always looking out for you. Untrue. I'm looking to make a fool of you. God has so much for you, I admit, but don't worry. If you stick with me, you'll never know. So often we let our pride rear its ugly head in our lives. And it gets in the way of what we could do, what we could become, the things that God has for us. And God can't work with us then. And we go back to our verse where God says, the person that's irresistible to me, the person that I am interested in being very involved in their life, is a person that has a, how does it say it? A poor and a contrite spirit that trembleth at my word. No picture of pride at all in, in there. There's nothing there about pride. Pride turns angels into devils. We read about that as we read about the Lucifer, son of the morning. But humility, as it touches a life, can turn those of us with a devilish nature into something much more angelic. Here's an imaginary family. These are just, it's just typical Americans, so some of this you're going to say, well, that doesn't apply to us at all, but listen anyway. Bill Johnson is extremely smug over the fact that he built a successful business from scratch with nobody's help. His wife, Nancy, beams with self-satisfaction over their four children, talking about them to anyone who will listen. 17-year-old Gwen has long blonde hair, which she brushes endlessly in front of a mirror. Right behind her at 16 is Josh, a linebacker on the football team known for his vicious tackles. 13-year-old Ricky is the class comedian and always loves to be the center of attention. Susie, who is extremely shy, even for a 12-year-old, has already built thick walls around her which nobody can penetrate. The people in that family are very, very different. But the issues they are facing, each of them, is an issue with pride. Now, they're not Christian. But if they ever become Christians, they're going to find that it's going to be a, a huge struggle to overcome. That this is, And it happens for all of us as we take that step of salvation is that we find that self and the desire to promote ourselves has to be taken care of over and over again. So what's the great crime in enjoying the admiration of others or in being a little protective? Pride, like any sin, is never satisfied. And an ounce of pride is too much. Gwen's vanity might seem like a harmless teenage fancy, but left unchecked, it will eventually become an ugly monster of arrogance that will manifest itself in many ways. If Susie doesn't learn to make herself vulnerable to others, she will eventually close herself into a small world where there's no room for anybody else but herself. In this family, there is a common denominator between each person's predominant type of pride, the protection and promotion of Almighty Self. The deeds, words, and thoughts that stem from one's pride 
are not victimless crimes. When a person is prideful, he automatically lifts himself up at the expense of others. And I, uh, I want to look at one area of pride for just a little bit yet this evening. And that is uh, a haughty spirit. A haughty spirit. What's it like to have a haughty spirit? It'll show on your face, for one thing. And maybe we think it doesn't show. Maybe we think that uh, people can't tell what we're thinking, what's happening inside of us. Psalms 10 verse 4 says, The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. See, a haughty person finds something in himself that he finds commendable. He says, I've got this certain thing that is really great. It's really wonderful. I can do something really well. And, and he takes that in his mind and, and uses that to say, I am better than other people. And, and you know, I, I want you this week to look at some of these areas and check in on your own heart and life. As I've talked to people about these different areas, some of them said, yeah, I, I don't have a problem with some of the things that you, you've spoken about, but that other one there, now that's the one that's me, or, you know, I can, I can see that touching my heart and life. So some of these, you're going to say, oh, yeah, and you're going to be able to find somebody else that you think it would fit. Uh, we usually get very good at that. But um, look at it at your own heart and see how uh, what God would have you work on there. The haughty person believes the best about himself. And because of that, we will ignore the less desirable things in our lives. That's how that this uh, haughty spirit of, of the pride issue in our lives uh, manifests itself. People really don't enjoy working with you very well if you have a haughty spirit. If someone is brave enough to confront you with the issues you have, you'll ignore it because you've got that one great quality and it is so great. If they would just understand how great you are, See, you know, see how that haughty spirit's coming back out again. Superior-minded people exalt themselves by comparing their strengths with other people's weaknesses. Oh, that's simple. If I always look at the best that I can do and compare it to the worst that you can do, I'm a lot better than you, right? Makes sense. And we don't recognize, if we have this haughty spirit within us, we do not recognize other people's strengths. We only we, we seek for other people's weaknesses. And if you want to, to foster an environment of distrust and suspicion and that sort of thing, just, just try this type of thing. It, it, it's it's a great seedbed for that. Superior-minded people exalt themselves by comparing their strengths with other people's weaknesses. If a haughty spirit consumes us, it leaves no room for doubt. I have to be the best. I am the best, regardless what anybody may... You know, those other people that keep coming to me and telling me I have issues, they're just jealous 
of my great superior superiority in this one area of my life. And we quit caring what other people think about us. Now that's very different from some other types of pride. But a haughty spirit finally comes to the point where they quit caring what other people think. And we don't want that in our hearts and lives. We, we don't want to come to the place where we don't care. Now, we can care too much about what other people think. That's true. We need to care most of all, and first of all, about what God thinks. And Isaiah 66, verse 2, has that for us. To this person will I look, to him that is of a poor and a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my words. You have those types of attitudes in your heart and life? It's not going to be an issue. A haughty spirit is not going to be there. Because we realize that God is so much more powerful, so great. You know, the first verse there and the first half of the second verse gives us a picture of what God, uh, another picture of what God is really like. That God has so much power and so much ability. He doesn't need us. And yet he's interested in us. And wants to do something for us. And we're going to talk about that the rest of the evening. You can turn then with me to Luke chapter 15. We want to talk this evening about what is God like. It's actually another portrait of God. Another picture that helps us understand God a little better. I fear that sometimes we are, I don't know, our vision is tinted by those Mount Sinai experiences. And God did those for a reason, and that is part of what God wants us to understand him to be like. He wants that. But is that the only way that God portrays himself to us? What does it look like? What is God really like? There's people that say, they ask the question to other people, they say, do you believe in God? And that's important that we know whether a person believes in God or not. But then maybe a more important question is, what is the God like that you believe in? What is he like? How many of you, if I had asked you what God is like, you would say, well, he's like an ecstatic housewife who just found her social security check. Did you say that? That's what the Bible says. Here in Luke chapter 15, there's actually three pictures of God given by Jesus. And that's one of them. We, we so often have this view of God, of this solemn judge, and he is. I mean, we, we, there are just all sorts of pictures of God. But Jesus here was trying to teach the people, Pharisees included, that seemed like an uphill battle, what the Father was really like. And of course the Pharisees had these preconceived ideas about what God was like. And Jesus wasn't about to change them in their, in their way of thinking. 
Now, for us today, if we have false concepts of God, false thinking about God, then that puts us in no better standing with him than an atheist, really. Because we are putting God in some sort of a box and we believe that this is, this is, this is how we are going to believe in him because we think he is a certain way. Just like that verse there in Isaiah, where it's basically saying that you can make yourself irresistible to God. Who knew that God could be inspired by one of us after he's made the world and the, the world is his footstool? Why is he interested in us? And yet he is very interested. We see there in the first part of the chapter, in verse chapter 15 of Luke, it talks about the man that has a hundred sheep. And it gives a picture of God as a loving father that goes out and seeks to find that sheep that is going astray. And he finds the sheep. He brings the, the sheep home. And when he comes home, he calls the neighbors together and they rejoice. They have a party. It's pretty obvious from this chapter that God enjoys parties. Uh, family reunion time, I guess. Uh, any, any of that type of thing. It's just, it shows here that God is very happy over any time we repent of our way of turning away from him. When we're on the wrong path, when we're going away from God and we repent, God is overjoyed. He says in verse 7, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. I don't know if he looked at the Pharisees out of the corner of his eye at that point. They thought they needed no repentance. And they couldn't understand why Jesus would spend time with evil, wicked people. That didn't make any sense to them because their concept of God was that God wasn't interested in those, those people at all. And Jesus teaching here, as he told about this good shepherd, he's helping the people see that God is interested in those that are lost, those that are living evil, wicked lives. And he wants something to happen because of it. He wants people to turn around. And I guess the one that really struck me is the one that I described earlier in verses 8 to 10 of the woman that is desperate to get part of her life savings back. This was probably like losing 10% of her life savings. She sweeps the house till she finds it. And over that found money is great rejoicing. She's ecstatic. She just is so wonder, wonderful that she found this money, that it's back in her possession again, and she knows where it is. And she calls in her friends and neighbors, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. 
And again he says, Likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Then we come to the next parable. And I don't know what you call this parable. It's been called quite a few things. And we're going to look at this parable probably three times, once tonight and two more times this week. But um, tonight we're going to call it the parable of the loving father because really that's what Jesus was trying to point out here. If If you follow the context in this chapter, he's trying to teach the Pharisees and others that are listening, there was, um, uh, let's see, let's look back at verses 1 and 2. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And Jesus from that point is trying to show these people, publicans and sinners, Pharisees and scribes, and he's trying to show them all what God is like. And he starts right in with, showing them about the good shepherd and also about the woman having the ten pieces of silver. And then he goes right into this parable. And probably the primary purpose for him starting this parable was to point out to them what the father was like. Now we often call it the parable of the prodigal son. And there's a lot. uh, He loaded this one down. It's just got loads of stuff in it. But it, probably his primary purpose to begin with was to look at it from the idea of the loving father. So let's look at this. I'm, I don't know that I'm going to read it. It's familiar to us. We're just going to tell it as we go along. The first point that you can find here in this passage as we look at it from the father's standpoint is that we worship a father who regrets our rebellion. If if you're going to really study this, we don't find the father griping about giving up the portion of the inheritance that was that young man's. By Jewish law, the way things worked out back then, when there was a family with two sons, the oldest son received two-thirds of the inheritance and the younger son received a third. Basically, when that younger son asked for that inheritance, he was saying, Dad, I know you're going to die someday, but I'm tired of waiting. It's taking too long. I can't handle it anymore. I've got things to do. do. I've got places to go and people to see. And it's just, I need that money. If I had that money, I could really do something with it. And you can only imagine what that did to the father's heart. As we think of it, those of us that are fathers, if we try to even imagine something like that. It makes me shudder and I want to just turn away from the thought. But of what it would make, the knife it would twist in your heart if your child would say that to you. He's basically saying, I don't want to wait. Give it to me now. But you, you can see in this father, he went ahead and allowed him to do the things that he wanted to do. He will, you know, the God, our Father, will let us walk away from fellowship with Him. It's a scary thought. And sometimes we wonder and we ask ourselves questions, why doesn't God make it so that once we're saved, it's just a sure thing that 
all desire to sin and the desires of the flesh, the desires of lust of the eyes and the pride of life and all that is just taken away from us and, and we'll just be good Christians from there on out. But God, in his infinite wisdom, allows us to make choices still. He allowed us to make the choice to accept salvation and become a child of his. And that's wonderful. But he also allows us the choice to walk away. Now, God isn't excited about that. That isn't something that God finds irresistible. We're walking away from the best thing we ever had. But God allows it. God never leaves us, but he will let us leave him and walk away from the fellowship that we can have him with him. God loves you so much that he will never force you to stay in fellowship with him. And that's a bit scary as we think about life in general and the salvation experience in our Christian experience in specific. There was a man who was a Christian, lived for Christ for many years. They allowed the lust of his eyes to get caught up with him and he ended up committing adultery. Got messed up in immoral things. And he made a statement that is very interesting. He said, if it was so wrong, why didn't God stop me? And you can apply that to any sin. Have you ever been tempted to think that? If, if what I'm doing, if what I did, however, present or past tense, if that was so wrong, why didn't God just throw a lightning bolt down in front of me and stop me? Keep it from happening. It's because God allows you to make a choice. God wouldn't be God if that happened. Not the God that I know. What, what is God like that you know? If we're just going to base it back there on the Mount Sinai experience, maybe we would believe that that's what God would do. But we've got a lot more perspective from our viewpoint today. We know more what God is like because we have so many more examples and we have God's word to show us. See, that man, when he said, if it was wrong, why didn't God stop it? Stop me, was actually blaming God for the mess he was in. See how that works? That as we, we look at sin in our life and we compare it to a holy God and we know it's not right, but as we compare it to this holy God, we look at it and we say, if God is so holy and so powerful and so righteous, why doesn't he stop me from doing the sin that I seem predisposed to do? But then we look at biblical uh, examples. We look at Adam and Eve. Did God stop them? I've heard people say, you know, oh, if, if God would have just kept them from doing that, well, then there would have been somebody else. God would have then had to take away choice from all of us down through history. Did God stop Cain? No. And you could go on down through the Old Testament. Did he stop Saul? 
Did he stop Judas in the New Testament? Did he stop David with Bathsheba? No, he didn't stop them. And some of those people repented for what they did and some of them did not. But God regrets when we rebel against Him. And God's, God's heart yearns for us and desires that we would turn back. And actually, you know, to get that first point that God regrets our rebellion, you have to look at the whole story here in Luke 15, of uh, this uh, parable of the loving father, to really see that in all of the different ways that you can look at it. We see it in his acceptance of the son when he came back. That that it hurt when he left, but not so bad that I won't allow him to come back. The second point that we'd like to learn tonight from this passage is that God responds quickly when you return. God runs when you return. As that boy was on his way home and he's dirty, he's filthy. He doesn't look like the same boy that left. He's in poor shape. And as he's coming down the road, his father is out there looking for him. And that's that's part of the picture of that we can see of God's regret for his rebellion is that the father was obviously going out and looking on a regular basis. I don't know if he did it every day. Uh, remember, it is that is a story, but it's representative of God. And God looks towards us at all times. But when this, this son that had... And, uh, go to verse 13. Let's just read a portion of that. The last phrase... And there wasted his substance with riotous living. That's what the son was, was doing in that far country. Wasting his substance. And that father could have, I don't know if he heard news of what his son was doing, but he probably suspected at least what was happening. And he could have been upset if, he, if it had been a materially uh, grounded father who was just interested in material things he probably would have been very upset about how his son was wasting the money that I gave him. I gave him a third of my my uh, livelihood, and there he is, throwing it away. Wasted his substance with riotous living. And before that boy knew it, he was in the pig pen, he was slopping hogs, and he couldn't even have any of the hog food to, to eat. And he finally reached that point where he was totally desperate, where he's really willing to do something about it. And all of us, if we battled with sin in our life, we've had to come to that point if we've actually turned around or, will, or are willing to turn around to where you're so tired of where you're at and what you're doing and the grip it has on you and on your life and on how it's affecting you and your loved ones that you're willing to do something about it. And that's where that boy, that's the point he got to. And so he starts for home. And I'm sure he's worried about how he's going to be received because he's going over and over these speeches in his mind about 
how he's going to talk dad into this. Now, scholars of the Bible, or Bible times, have done some digging. I don't know how they came up with this, if it was because of this story, or if they just stumbled on it and then found the parallel. But there was a, um, a similar story that the Jews were used to, and they had, it was a, a story they were used to even before the time of Christ. And um, that story had a very different ending. It was a Pharisee story. In that story, when the son came crawling back, the father rejected the son. When the Pharisees heard him start this story, they, said, they probably said to each other, Oh yeah, we've heard this one before. We know what this story is about. But how surprised they were when they got to the end. Jesus really changed the ending. Actually, he changed it halfway through because it's, we're not even really near the end of the story at this point. In that story, the father rejected the son. He said, you've got what's coming to you, as that, as that story went. Basically, folded his arms across his chest and said, get out of here. You wasted my stuff. You had your chance. Go. And that's Old Testament. There's a, there's a place in the Old Testament that made it possible that a father and mother could have their son stoned for rebellion. And the Pharisees gloated in that and enjoyed that. They thought that was great. And they applied that in a lot of areas in their life, and that's why they have the views they did towards tax collectors and sinners and all the people that they thought Jesus shouldn't be running around with. And remember that in this story, Jesus was probably trying to point out to the people here what the Father was like. And when he changes the ending of the story and says the Father ran to meet the Son. Let's see what it says there. Okay, got to get caught up here. And he arose and came to his father, verse 20. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And, and the Greek for kissed him there, well, it gets kind of gross to us, some of us that wouldn't do such a thing in public, but it means to smother him with kisses. It's not just a single peck on the cheek. It means to smother him with kisses or to continue kissing him. Uh, full acceptance of this boy that was returning home. In Jewish times, the, uh, the, which the story was told, a man wore long robes. He couldn't run in those long robes, except he did one thing, and that was he yanked them up and took off. And we can get a kind of a mental image of that, can't we? Nothing dignified about it. It was 
an all-out effort to get somewhere that we wanted to get to in a hurry. You only did that if your house is on fire or something like that. But this man did it because he was welcoming his son back home. And it's showing us a picture of God that God doesn't worry about what people think is right or wrong or how it should be done. You know, I've heard stories about people that worry about who should baptize who and how it should be done and things like that. And I wonder what God thinks about all of that. I think God is a God of order and thinks things should be done properly. But I'm reminded of a story that happened not too long ago of a young man that uh, needed baptism. And there wasn't an ordained person there to do it. But there was some good, strong Christian men there. And they went ahead and baptized that young man. It was in another culture, another place. And it needed to be done, from my point of view at least. But there are people that think they did the wrong thing. And I wonder, you know, what is their view of God? And what God wants for his children. So, picks up his robes. He kisses his son. And he's looking at this young man and... This young man's filthy. His clothes are torn. He could have said, oh, you're back. Good. Clean yourself up before you come into the house, please. No, he didn't, he didn't come across that way. He, he hollers for a servant. He says, bring out the best robe. And he throws that over top of his filthy, dirty, unkempt appearance. And you can get a glimpse there of what God does when he takes the robe of righteousness and covers our sins. Now, we're not talking about unconfessed sin. We're talking about sins that have been taken care of and repented. God works in our hearts and lives and throws that robe of righteousness over us. Sometimes we're tempted to think that I've done too, too much or too bad a thing. And God will never take me back. You ever heard people think that way? This parable is to help us realize what God is really like. When we start for home, when we repent, and when we turn towards God, He will always meet us more than halfway. There's a song that says, if you'll take one step toward the Savior, my friend, you'll find his arms open wide. Receive him and all of your darkness will end within your heart. You'll abide. You don't see any anger in the Father's heart towards his Son. There is no... Um, you know, okay, we've got some things to discuss here and we're going to have to get some things set right here uh, and taken care of. And, and yeah, your older brother too, we're going to have to see how that's going to work out. None of that. God just said, you're home. Great. Bring out the best robe. What are some other things that he brought? Well, that brings us to the third point. God will restore us when we repent. God restores us when we repent. 
You know, that young man came up there and he had all those planned speeches, all those things that he was going to say to Dad. And some of them were right, some of them he was a little, probably a little bit off base on. Two of them were very right. He says, Dad, I've sinned against heaven. Absolutely, he had. The way he treated his parents was awful. And that went again for the second part where he says, Dad, I've sinned against you. And that's just part of the same thing. But he realized it as more than just a relationship problem between two people. He also realizes a relationship between a relationship problem between him and God. And and as we look at sin in our life, well, sometimes we we're not willing to call it sin. We're not willing to allow the Spirit that much freedom. We just say, well, I, yeah, I, I've got some issues, got some problems here. Um, but yeah, with with the proper uh, care and uh, maybe maybe a little bit of help from my brethren, I'm sure I can overcome them. And we kind of leave God out of the picture when maybe we need to, what we do, we need to call it for what it is and say, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against someone else, I've messed up here. But then he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And when he said that phrase, in reality, he was saying, I once was worthy to be called your son. And that's where he probably, uh, we understand what he was saying. But as we think of it in relation to our relationship with God, we're never worthy. We never were. We never will be. It is totally grace that is heaped upon us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And as, as Christ has entered our lives, as only by his grace that we are saved. And it's not the fact that we were worthy and we fell from that grace. Yes, we may have accepted that grace and allowed God to work in our hearts and lives. But we can't say that I once was worthy and now I'm no longer worthy. We have never deserved to be called the sons of God. The father also gave him a ring. That ring was a status symbol back in those days. A symbol of being part of a family. He probably had one when he left, but he probably pawned it long ago. But he's basically saying, you're, you're part of the family again. The boy is requesting that he gets treated as a hired servant or as a slave. And the dad says, no, 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 you're, you're back in the family again. That's a picture of God. Another thing was he said, bring shoes for his feet. And this was a new... Uh, thought as I studied for this that I found out. Slaves didn't wear shoes back then, but sons did. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with the song, Negro Spiritual, um, All God's Children Got Shoes. That's where this phrase is where that song comes from. Because they realized, whoever wrote that song realized that we're not slaves of God. We're not, we, are, we serve God like a servant, but we're sons. We're children of God. And God's children wear shoes. Everything was restored to that son that he had lost. Now, there were scars. There were 
there was, I'm sure there was uh, reaping and sowing. But the Father is willing to restore the things that we have lost if we repent and turn to him. And then the bonus is thrown in. There's a barbecue to go with it. God is looking for ways to bless us above that which we are able to think. He's willing to throw open the windows of heaven and pour out blessings upon us. And, and we wallow along in our self-pity and our desire to, well, I'm, I've been too bad. I, I've, I've done things the wrong way. And, and God can never accept me. And, well, what will my friends at church say? What will, well, are they friends or not? And as we think about this issue tonight, I'm focusing mainly on the son coming back to the father and what the father was like. But there's, there needs to be also in the back of our minds, those of us, especially those of us that are fathers, but any of us as we are in a relationship, is are we willing to forgive as God forgive, forgave in this situation? Are we willing to receive somebody back into fellowship and allow them to get back in at a place where they can go forward again? Or do we always hold people at arm's length? Ernest Hemingway wrote a book and it's about uh, a father that lived, or a family that lived in Spain. He had a son named Paco. And the two became very angry with each other and they became estranged. The father kicked the son out of the house, told him to go. He was angry with him. After a time, the father's anger ended. And in this story, I hope you can see somewhat the other side where a son wants to have forgiveness and a father does not extend it. But the father's anger finally ended and he realized he had made a mistake. And he began to hunt for his son and he hunted and hunted. And as he hunted, you know, he was more and more interested in getting back on good relationship with his son. But he couldn't find his son. And finally, in desperation, in desperation, he put an ad in the newspaper in Madrid. And he wrote, Paco, all is forgiven. Meet me at the newspaper office at 9 a.m. tomorrow. Love, your father. The next morning, there were 600 young men named Paco at the newspaper. And, and I, I tell that story to show you that, you know, maybe there's people over here that are waiting for you to extend forgiveness. That's the other side of the coin. See, Paco, I think that, that might mean Paul or something similar. Very common name in that area. And 600 young men showed up to see if they could be reconciled with their fathers. Now, that's just a story. But are there people that wish that we as leaders or fathers or, you know, just you're the other half of a relationship, that wish that somehow the rift between us could be healed? And because of our stubborn, impenitent hearts, 
we're unable to, or we won't allow ourselves to give in and forgive. God shows us in this picture, or Jesus shows us a picture of his heavenly father, of God, and how he wants to change our lives. He regrets our rebellion. He runs to us when we're returning. And he's quite ready to restore us to fellowship again. So as you look into your own hearts and lives, you have to know what the Holy Spirit is telling you. And if God's Spirit is speaking to you, I, I want you to follow that and allow that to work in your heart and life to, uh, tonight, at any time. This week, um, we won't be having an invitation necessarily every week. I don't think we'll have one tonight. But the invitation time isn't just this week, and it isn't just when we sing a verse of song. If you need to speak to somebody, if you need to make things right, if you need to talk to God, talk to God. Allow Him. God's a loving Heavenly Father. He would be very excited to have someone repent and turn back that needs repentance. In the verses there he says, how does it say? He, re, he rejoices more over the 90, or let's see, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over 99 just persons which need no repentance. I hope you're here tonight and need no repentance. I hope all of you are in that case. But if you are here tonight and need repentance, God would just love to have you back. God would love to work in your heart and life. So, pray as we go through this week that God's will would be done, that our hearts would be strengthened, that I would find strength to bring the things that God's Holy Spirit would lay on our heart and that uh, we would all be blessed together.